Okay, Jesse, last week's surgeon story has really stuck with me. What do you got for me this time around? A bitter divorce between a small town dentist and his unfaithful wife ends in murder. Along the way, allegations of child abuse and police corruption rock the community. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about second chances, bad romances, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting this show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we are so excited as always this week to welcome and shout out a new set of our very best friends. Welcome to Richard H., Jamie B., and Duranta R.S., Christy M., Danielle R.V., and Natalie G., Leah K., J.M., and Jody C., Lori S., Caitlin T., and Sydney V. And finally, Eliza B. Yes, and even though this is coming out the first week of July, we are recording it in mid-June right now because we're just getting ahead of schedule before we go on a break. So it won't... Just want to say something real quick to everyone. Yes. Jessica Prey has worked double time. (laughs) To get all of these episodes out on time, she has busted her ass, so we all owe her a big thank you. She You're so cute. She wrote two to three episodes a week, which I think for all of our listeners that have been listening for a long time know that that means three to five books a week that she read. <laughs> yes, but it will all be worth it when you guys have your regularly scheduled episodes and we are off for two weeks, like kind of three. It's going to be really nice. Yes, it will. But yeah, we just had our Patreon happy hour, which was super duper fun. So thank you to all the patrons who came. We love chatting with you and seeing some familiar faces. So that is another perk of Patreon that you might want to check out. But now we are going to talk about what you're all here for today, which is a love murder. Let's do it. Let's go, Jess. I'm ready. Blairsville, Pennsylvania is the type of a small town that evokes Americana. The type of place where churches, Elks clubs, and VFW halls line the streets. Where kids graduate from high school with the same class they went to kindergarten with. Where nothing bad ever happens. And that was true for years. Not one single homicide until one dark night in April of 2006. One of Blairsville's residents would be found at home In a scene that could have come only out of a slasher movie, blood was spattered on the walls. It coated the floorboards in a deep, sticky pool. There was so much blood that it had dripped down into the basement. The struggle had clearly been immense. Blood-soaked glass glittered under police lights. The furniture had been knocked aside. Papers and photographs were strewn on the floor. 
the victim had been violently slashed with a knife, almost literally cut to pieces as a slice to the neck had nearly removed the victim's head from their body. The forensic psychologist determined that the killer had been intimately familiar with the victim. The frenzied attack, the deep slashes, the clear rage in which the killing blows were delivered indicated a violent passion. Once the authorities dug into the case, they found themselves in a whodunit, a vengeful, soon-to-be ex-spouse, a potential affair partner's husband, the suggestion that perhaps it was a burglary gone wrong, or maybe even retribution for the victim's own evil doing. Allegations of child sexual abuse, so trigger warning for that, as well as police corruption would dog the case and the people involved until finally the murderer was discovered. The primary source for today is Dying for Love by Carlton Smith, as oh. well as the another Carlton Smith. We're back with Carlton Smith. And then the first episode of the first season of the ID show, Deadly Dentists. Oh, which, no. Yes, I do love a deadly dentist, much to my father's chagrin. I love calling him up and telling him all about all the other deadly dentists. And speaking of that, I think I'm going to cover Larry Rudolph, the big game hunting dentist for July's Patreon. So get excited for that. Just on a dentist roll. I'm just on a dentist roll. I'm going to stay with it. So let's start with a love story, as all love murders do. And this one is between Dr. John Yelenick and Michelle Kamler. John Yelenick had a tragic origin story, but an aspiring rise to prominence in his hometown of Blairsville. So John was born in 1967 to a pair of unwed teachers, John Yelenick Sr. and Mary Lois Swayze. And this is a very small town. And even though it was 1967, apparently a lot of people had a problem with the fact that they were having a baby without being married. Oh, yeah. I mean... I will note, I do like what you did there with picking a very patriotic town for the 4th of July episode. I did, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I can see that if it's a small town, people just like gossiping about anything that they can grab onto. So the fact that they didn't get married and had a kid is definitely something that I could see them all gossiping about in the 60s. Yes, and this was a very small town. And the author pointed out, it comes up in the TV show I watched too, that Everybody knew everybody, and that means everybody knew everybody's business. Yep. There's nothing else to do. Yeah. And I guess this really upset Mary Lois's family, unfortunately, and it caused an estrangement because they were not married, which is really sad because she's about to have a baby and it's supposed to be the happiest time of her life. And instead, it seemed like her family shunned her. <sighs> and they were planning on getting married after little John was born. But devastatingly, John Sr. died in a car accident when the baby was only three months old. Oh, no. Mary Lois never remarried. So she was left alone, already estranged from her family. And the guy that was the father of her baby, the love of her life, and the man she planned on marrying was gone. So it formed a very close bond between... John and his mother, because it was, it really felt like the two of them against the world. She was also extremely protective of him because he was the most precious thing to her in the entire world. So she kind of kept him in a little bit of a bubble. 
And she tried to give him absolutely everything that he could want in life. She didn't make a ton of money, but she was very smart about investing and she was very frugal. So he could take any opportunity he wanted in life later on. But, you know, John grew up kind of wishing that he had one of the big families that he saw other kids that he grew up being raised with, like families that had like five, six kids and they all ran around together and, you know, had a different experience of being social and being part of the world and feeling like you're part of a team. And that was something he really craved. And he also craved a father figure. Yeah, of course. And so while there was nothing he could do about not having any siblings, he did find a role model early on in his life in a somewhat unexpected place, the dentist's office. Little John began seeing local dentist Dr. Riley when he was six years old, and Mary Lois made sure that he kept his six-month appointments like clockwork because, of course, she took care of his teeth. And John was a very bright and interested kid, and I guess he would ask Dr. Riley all of these questions about the dental equipment and how he was using them and what he was doing. And Dr. Riley really liked John, and he would patiently explain everything, and they'd have these great conversations. And it was clear that even though they were just dentist and patient, Dr. Riley took a shine to John and really treated him like something more. Yeah. When John was a senior in high school, he finally revealed to Dr. Riley that he too wanted to be a dentist. Wow. Yes. And Dr. Riley said that he was floored. He was quoted as saying he was floored because he thought like young men would want to be pilots and medical doctors or surgeons, like if they were going to go into the medical field, he said it's not very glamorous having to work in people's mouths day in and day out. So he was really touched that he had influenced John in that way. Dr. Riley mentored John throughout college and dental school, and he was there alongside Mary Lois at John's graduation from dental school. Afterwards, John told him that there was only one practice that he wanted to work at now that he was a fully-fledged dentist. And of course, it was Dr. Riley's. Okay. And so it came to be that the mentor and the mentee, the kind local dentist and the lonely little boy all grown up, came to be business partners. Wow. Isn't that cute? It is, as long as it's cute and doesn't go anywhere weird. <laughs> You're so suspicious. John began to blossom both socially and professionally. Already a good hometown boy, John now became a pillar of his community. He was a great friend, always willing to help somebody out in need. And he had a special place in his heart for his kid patients, hoping to be the same good-hearted example of a dentist that Dr. Riley had been to him. Yep. Well, John had been once pretty nerdy. Throughout school, he was known as a nerd. He was not into sports at all. And he was kind of outside of the popular social strata. Yep. But it seemed like after becoming a dentist, John had changed a lot. Like he was now very witty. He became popular in town. He had this great career. He had this newfound confidence. And he was now considered quite the catch in Blairsville. So he had dated a little bit here and there, but he hadn't really met the one, which was something he really wanted to do because his lifelong goal was to create the family that he hadn't had growing up. Yeah. So he was had a very specific goal in mind. Yes, he did. And he was approaching 30 when he asked one of his friends and patients if they knew any attractive single woman that would potentially make you know, a good wife and mother. And that person ended up 
introducing John to this woman named Michelle, who was a 25-year-old single mother of two who was working as a Budweiser girl in nearby Indiana, Pennsylvania. There is a picture of her that we will definitely put on the Instagram of her wearing her Budweiser dress. A dress? It's a dress. Yeah, it's like a tight, like mini dress type thing. Like a bodycon? Like all the way down? Yeah, bodycon, but printed with Budweiser. Wow. And so being a Budweiser girl means that you just like go to bars and give out buds? I would assume so. Yeah. Like remember when there were like Red Bull people? Yes. One of my friends was a moonshot girl. So she would go to like, remember Saint, that club Saint? Yeah. In Boston. And she would just give out shots of the stuff so that people would take it and then they would go order it at the bar, obviously. Yeah. So Michelle was vivacious. She was funny. She was exciting to be around. And she was pretty, pretty easy on the eyes, let's say. (laughs) John was head over heels for her right away. And he knew he wanted to marry her pretty early on in their relationship. He told his cousin, Marianne, how infatuated he was saying, I've won the homecoming queen. Oh, okay. Now, I don't know if she was quite literally the homecoming queen or she was just the homecoming queen type. In his eyes, too. In his eyes, he grew up as, it's a kind of like a revenge of the nerds fantasy here. Like he had never dated the homecoming queen in high school, but now he's a 30-year-old man and he can win the homecoming queen in life. Yeah. He was also thrilled to get to step in and be a father figure for Michelle's children from her previous marriage. It felt like an instant family, which was what he had wanted. Of course. Michelle was attracted to John for his brains, his kindness, and maybe more than anything else, security. (laughs) John was a stable, loyal type of guy who made a lot of money as a dentist. It was a dream come true for a struggling single mother. And you said she has one kid, right? She has two kids. Two kids. Okay, I didn't, couldn't remember if you said one that was two or two kids. Cool. Yeah, she was 25 with two kids who were, I think at this time, seven and four or something. So thereabouts those ages. Okay. So she had obviously had her first at 18, so she had been fairly young. The relationship progressed very quickly. So quickly, in fact, that some of John's friends were concerned that Michelle just wanted John for his money. Ooh, that's never a good feeling. No, but there was an emotional reason for how serious the couple got. And that was because John's beloved mother, the one who was his only real family, was dying of cancer. Mm. Michelle put any rumors that she wasn't with John for the right reasons to rest when she moved into the Yelenik family home to care for Mary Lois in her last days. When she passed away in June of 1997, John was devastated. His mom had only been about 52, maybe 53 when she passed. Oh, my God. That's way too young. But I guess cancer was such a different beast back then, too. Absolutely. It was really devastating for John because, I mean, other than Dr. Riley, who's his business partner, his mother was all he had. She was his whole life. And it made sense a little bit to people on the outside why he had moved so fast with Michelle because he wanted his mother to see that he was happy, that this was the woman he was going to marry so that she could die knowing that he was settled and he had a family. Mary Lois had had a sizable life insurance policy, so John received that as well as her estate, which she did have a lot of investment properties. So that paired with his half of the dental practice made John a millionaire a couple times over. 
One month after Mary Lois' death, John prepared for his own eventual death by making his will, which left absolutely everything to Michelle, his girlfriend of less than a year. Wow. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's just like death makes people like think about things that you never thought of before too though. So it's like even though that seems soon, fast, yeah, and like I feel like it makes you, it pushes you into doing things that you would definitely put off for way longer. I agree completely. And speaking of that, Andy, she was not going to be his girlfriend for much longer because in December of that same year, John and Michelle eloped in Vegas. Oh. So this might have been right around a year after they met or so, but they went off to Vegas and got married. People were stunned at how fast it all happened, especially when John was absolutely still in the grieving process. Yeah. Dr. Riley said that he thought it was too quick, and he told John that. But for the first time ever, John pushed back against Dr. Riley and said that it was none of his business. So he said, well, can I at least ask you what the hurry is? And John said, I don't want to be alone at Christmas. Yeah, I mean, he lost his only family member. Yeah, it was an emotionally vulnerable time in John's life. And some speculated that Michelle took advantage of that. Yeah. Did she, though, Jesse? Are you going to tell us? Well, we don't know. (laughs) I'm going to tell you later. I'm not going to tell you right now. To others, it seemed like John needed a woman in his life to tell him what to do, basically. They said that I think he had still lived with his mother at the time she died, and she really, like, ran the house and had a hold over her adult son. And it seemed like... Basically, Michelle came in and took over that role and was now calling the shots and telling John what to do. Yeah. He was introduced to her by a friend? Yes. So do other people in the town know of her, like know of her history? And She, at least at the time that they met, was living in a town that was a half hour away. Okay. Now, the person that introduced them would later regret it. Okay. They would say later that, They thought it was going to be a fling, like it was going to be fun for John, but didn't think about how serious he was about marriage at that time. Yeah, because I think he had he was asking people because he did want to find a partner to start having a family with. So it's like that was his intention. So I think there must have been some miscommunication, some wires crossed. Yeah, yeah, about (laughs) what he was exactly looking for in a partner at that time in his life. But one thing they both agreed on was that they wanted to have a child as soon as possible together. And that would turn out to be not so easy because Michelle had once had her tubes tied. So before she met John, she had already had the reversal done, but it doesn't guarantee that your fertility will return. And the doctors told her that it was likely going to be difficult to conceive. So they had to turn to IVF, and unfortunately, they spent thousands upon thousands of dollars, and I think almost a year trying, it just became clear that it was not going to work. So this took an extraordinary toll on the young marriage, as you can imagine, just the frustration and the hopelessness. But they were committed to having a child no matter what. They didn't care if it was biologically theirs. And so in March of 2000, John and Michelle adopted a little boy from Russia whom they named Jamie and called JJ. Was she honest with him about her fertility? Okay. 
mm-hmm. from the beginning. Okay, cool. This is, we're not used to people who have their tubes tied being honest about their fertility issues, but I think we have a track record of about three or four women not being intentionally dishonest. <laughs> yes. And Michelle was clear with him that she had had the tubal ligation and then she had had it reversed, but her fertility was up in the air. Yeah. John's loved ones were really happy for him when he adopted because all he had ever wanted in life was to be a husband and father. But they were growing concerned about Michelle's influence over John. She had made John move away from his beloved hometown, where his practice was, a half hour away to the bigger town of Indiana, where he bought her a really nice big house with a swimming pool. And again, it's only a 30-minute commute. But John stopped regularly socializing with his friends and family, despite it not being that far away. And many people thought it was because Michelle wasn't letting him, that she was beginning to alienate him from his hometown and his network of people that were there. Yeah. So John, during this time, ended up taking Michelle's oldest son to a hockey practice, and he hit it off with a woman who was there, like a a hockey mom, basically. And it is not entirely sure if this relationship progressed into something illicit oh, or not. But we do know that Michelle believed it had. So Michelle believed something was going on with John and this woman, which drove her absolutely crazy. She became incensed and she ended up stalking this woman and sending her harassing letters. Obviously, this is going to not be great for a marriage. No. And they have a baby at home now, too. They have a baby at home. Mm -hmm. And while we do not know for sure whether or not John was cheating on Michelle, we do know that very quickly after this, Michelle struck up her own affair with a wealthy married businessman. He's married, too? He's married as well. Oh, geez, guys. Come on. (laughs) By February of 2002, John was aware of this affair. And since Michelle did not seem inclined to stop seeing the man, I think she believed that they were going to divorce their spouses and be together. John sadly decided that it was time for him to exit the marriage. And he allowed Michelle and the children to stay in the house that he bought and he was paying the mortgage on while he moved back to Blairsville, where he was practicing. Okay. Only two months later, however, the businessman dumped Michelle to go back to his wife permanently. And Michelle did not take this well. The state troopers had to be called because Michelle was allegedly harassing her former affair partner as well as his wife. Ooh, she's seeming a little unhinged. She's a little unhinged. And I guess this guy also called up John, the guy that had had the affair with Michelle, and said, you can have her back. Like, she is nuts. And John said, no, thank you. I'll pass. Oh. Yeah, he wasn't going to take her back. Wow. Well, Michelle really knew how to turn lemons into lemonade or more literally a harassment complaint into a (laughs) brand new boyfriend because she would end up dating one of the state troopers that had been sent to investigate the complaint. Wow. Dude, like, you know what you're getting into. I don't even feel bad for you. (laughs) That is entirely true. And Oh, surprisingly, the complaint just disappeared. She was never charged with anything. But when you're stooping the state trooper investigating it, I can see how that could happen. (laughs) 
Well, this guy was a strapping six foot three, 225 pound hunk of hunk of burning flesh named Kevin Foley. So it looks like what had happened was that Kevin had been married for a decade. He had divorced his first wife. And then he had immediately got into a second marriage. And that marriage was still new when he met Michelle. (laughs) But it would not be happening for very long. It would not be long lasting. It would not be a long lasting marriage. So Kevin is this big, built, very buff, very sporty, very jock-like state trooper. But he also had a pretty sad past. Kevin and his sister had been abused as children, physically and perhaps sexually, before they were adopted by a nice couple who raised them in the Adirondacks of New York before moving to Florida's Gulf Coast. Okay. So Kevin grew up knowing that he wanted to go into law enforcement so he could protect children like himself and his sister. And he developed a very rigid sense of right and wrong. Things were black or white. There was no gray area for Kevin Foley. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. It is such a glorious sound. (laughs) It really is. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling boutique vintage clothing finds or handcrafted home decor, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. Shopify covers every sales channel from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. Jesse, I cannot tell you enough how much Shopify means to me and our team. As a small business owner, I have fallen in love head over heels with Shopify. It provides small businesses with pretty much all of the tools necessary to act like a big business. There are so many amazing apps that I've discovered that help scale and grow. Apps that help you connect with new and existing customers through text and email, customer service support for shipping questions from your customers, and it even integrates and syncs with very important programs that are needed to scale your business in other ways, such as wholesale or with inventory management. And the best part, in my opinion, is that Shopify is so intuitive and user-friendly, so it's super easy to either learn quick from a friend or colleague or just teach yourself. Well, I'm in favor of anything that makes your life easier so you can spend more time with me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now for our wonderful listeners, it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Now you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lovemurder, all lowercase. Just go to shopify.com slash lovemurder to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash lovemurder. So where does an affair fall in that? I mean, that's why I guess he divorced (laughs) his second wife pretty quickly. Yeah, it's just like, it has to be a divorce or I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. It was not a long lasting affair. And also, I would like to say that Kevin and Michelle both denied that they were having an affair and the second wife never has publicly spoken about it. 
But again, small town, rumor mill said that they were sleeping together before the divorce, obviously. So he went into the army after high school and he received a degree in criminal justice when he was discharged. An early marriage brought him to Pennsylvania. That was his first marriage where he became a state trooper in 1994. Now, Kevin had a justice thing, like we've kind of hinted on already. And he really was attracted to Michelle because not only was she lovely, but she presented herself as a damsel in distress. Okay. So he very much wanted to be the white knight who saved her in this scenario. In her perspective, what she is telling Kevin is that her cheating, arrogant dentist husband had left her high and dry. With the kids or without the kids? With the kids. So he wanted custody of his child, the one they had adopted together. But she was kind of like over my dead body. And he's like, okay, well, let's, I will give you money. He was giving her spousal support. He was giving her money for JJ, basically anytime she asked. And people who worked at John's office said that Michelle was calling all the time and he would pay whatever bills she asked him to. So he was like, I'm going to pay for everything until we sort out a real custody agreement. But she was left with the kids. Now, they're getting a lot of money from John, though. So it's not exactly like she is really left high and dry. No, of course not. And people who knew Kevin and worked with him said that he was self-righteous, that he could be a bully. He was judgmental, basically. In Kevin's world, you were good or you were bad. And once he decided somebody was bad, he was merciless. So that's where the kind of the bully thing came from. Totally. And I bet, Andy, you can guess one guy who was on his shit list. I would think the dentist. Yes, Dr. John Yelenick was definitely not Trooper Foley's favorite person. Yeah, it's kind of like you don't want to get in this guy's head because he has such defined, like, rights and wrongs. And even if they're not justified or rational, it's like once it's almost like a bull. Once it's in their head, it's like there's no stopping them. That's exactly right. And I think also he had that like captain of the football team, like like he lifted. There was some suspicion that he was taking steroids. He was on intramural sports teams. So like a lot of the people in the state troopers barracks were kind of divided on him. They were like, yeah, he's like our dude, you know, or they were like, that guy's a fucking asshole and he's going to be a liability. Yeah. You like, I'd rather have him never think about me ever. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, well, they didn't want to get on his bad side, but then there was people that kind of followed him a little bit too. So Kevin and Michelle ended up filing for their respective divorces, him from his second wife and honestly, actually Michelle from her second husband within two days of each other. So now they're getting divorced and this is when John and Michelle's relationship gets really ugly. This was not a good divorce. John was very ready to put the marriage behind him and even offered Michelle a ludicrously good settlement. She was going to receive 60% of his real estate holdings, which included numerous valuable investment properties and were all things that he bought or had inherited from his mother. So that's a lot. She's getting a lot from him. And all he wanted was partial custody of their son, JJ. Well, Michelle filed for sole custody, which to John felt like a declaration of war. Of course. He was not having that. So then he changed his filing and he said, now I'm going for sole custody of JJ. 
So this is going to get messy. And the divorce dragged on with Michelle making more and more financial demands of John. And it got to the point where John just started saying no. Because she used to call him all the time and be like, I need to get this money for this bill. And I need to take him shopping for new clothes. I need to do this. And where he had always forked over money without a question before, when they started getting into the divorce and when he found out that she was filing for sole custody, he was like, fuck you. No money then. Let's get this divorce settled and then you can have whatever the court thinks you should have. So this really pissed Michelle off and she decided to hit him where it hurt. This is where the trigger warning comes in because she accused John of sexually abusing their six-year-old son. Oh my God. So this is her son, not JJ. This is JJ, no. Oh, so it's been that long. I don't know how old he was when he ado- they adopted him, but I would- he was a baby, but this has been over six years. They were married. So they got married the very last month of 1997, and then they adopted in 2000, and they were separated, I think, starting in like 2002, 2003. But they are now only finalizing their divorce in 2005, 2006 is the time frame that we're in now. And JJ had been a baby when they adopted him, but I don't know how many months old. He wasn't a newborn. Yeah. So he's now six years old. And she had previously tried to accuse John of physically abusing JJ when he was, I think, four or five years old and the court had thrown that out saying that there was no evidence they took him to a doctor and the doctor was like no he's not injured so there's no evidence of whatever you said has happened didn't didn't happen because there's no physical evidence of it and when he's four or five they could psychologically evaluate him as well i would assume yeah which is what they did when he was six so these allegations were extremely disgusting it was like it bothered me to a point where I was like, who would even think of this? Think of like what she said he did to the child. Like it bothered me so much, but because I don't, it's not true. So I'm not even going to get into it, what she accused him of. But it was just disturbing to think that somebody had even thought about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. And it's absolutely not true. Not only did John take and pass two lie detector tests, Michelle did not take a lie detector test, which they asked her to do to prove that her son had said these things to her because that's what she was claiming. But she refused to take it saying that she had vaginal bleeding. I don't know if that's her period. And that she didn't feel comfortable taking it while she was bleeding, which is a weird excuse. So there was already that. And Kevin had gotten one of his friends. So this was a woman that he was friends with to do the investigation. So this woman came in on the side of Michelle and Kevin, but she's a professional, so she was going to do her job, obviously. Yeah. And she didn't even particularly like John. She said that she found him a little arrogant while she was investigating him. But nonetheless, her distaste for John and her, you know, having been friends with Kevin for years did not matter. She could not find any evidence that this was true at all. And in fact, Mary Ann, John's cousin, is on the show. And I know this was also true from the book, I believe. And it turns out when the judge spoke directly to JJ, JJ said that his mother told him to say those things. Wow. And that it wasn't true. Implanting stuff like that in your six-year-old's head is just disgusting on a whole other level on its own. Like I can't even find the words to talk about 
what she was doing to JJ too, because obviously John was not allowed to have any sort of contact with his son for months and months. I think it was like altogether six months during this investigation for good reason. I mean, abusers should not, even if they haven't been charged yet, should not be around the children just to be safe. And so he was very demoralized about that. But in those six months, think of all the things that Michelle could be telling him and filling his head with. By the time he was able to see his son again, he refused to see him. He was kicking and screaming and wouldn't do a visitation with him, which is incredibly heartbreaking. Yeah. But to Kevin, when he was reunited with JJ, and Kevin witnessed this because this handover was supposed to happen at a police station, he thought that that was evidence that the court system had failed them, that... JJ was being molested and that they were ruling that the pedophile got to keep the kid or keep visitation with the kid because he was saying, well, look, he is upset. He doesn't want to go with his dad, which, of course, he was upset and didn't want to go with his dad because his mother has been telling him that he is a monster who abuses him in the most disgusting fashion for two thirds of a year at this point. Yeah. If not more. So sad. Yes. So John was really demoralized at this point. He was cleared, but he had gone months and months under the cloud of suspicion. And again, small town, people talk, everybody knows. And it's one of those things that sticks. Even if you are cleared, a lot of people are always going to look at you funny if you've been accused of molesting a child. Absolutely. It's a very hard stigma to break, even in a place where people have known you your whole life. At that point, he was pretty depressed. And John's divorce attorney urged him to just forget about custody of Jamie for now because there was a lot of legal red tape that had to be cleaned up about all of these accusations before they could even start to figure out custody with him because he'd only just earned back the right to even see his son. Oh, my God. So sad. It's so sad. And so his divorce attorney's like, look, hold that aside for now. We just got to get you divorced from this woman. She is a nightmare and she is going to cause a lot of problems for you. Let's make this official. And his attorney is actually on the show that I watched, The Deadly Dentist. And her name is Effie Alexander. And she said, John was a very kind person and he probably didn't have a lot of, I would say, spine He was very open to suggestions regarding money issues, and I think that he was far too generous with Michelle, and he never held his ground. So even after this, he's giving her way too much. John was trying to move on with his life. He was pouring himself into his practice. He was reviving his friendships, and John became close to his next-door neighbors, the Use family. He had gone to high school with the mother and the wife, Melissa Use, and he was now friendly with her husband, Tom who was a Navy vet, and he got friendly with Tom as well. So when Tom was around, when he wasn't deployed with the Navy, he would come by and he would work out at John's equipment because he had like a home gym situation. And the uses had some boys too. So I think they had kids, all sons, ranging in ages from like 9 to 17. Okay. And so they were friendly with John as well. They used to come over and play video games with him or borrow video games from him. He's just like a nice guy and a neighbor. So even before John was officially cleared, the uses had known that the allegations were bullshit and John was being victimized. And in fact, Tom Use had even gone in his military uniform to a hearing to stand up for John. So 
He's got this family next door that are pretty good friends of his. And then he has, of course, other friends in the community. Well, one person who absolutely still thought that John was a child molester was state trooper Kevin Foley. Kevin is now living with Michelle, and the two of them were in the process of adopting a baby together. No. Yeah. So that is about to be four kids total in their home. Michelle is not working. So this is going to be four children on one state trooper's salary. And they were really relying on John's money. But when the divorce was going to be finalized, Michelle was no longer going to receive any sort of spousal support because Pennsylvania has a law that if you are cohabitating with a man who you're not related to, i.e. you're in a romantic relationship with this man, then you can't get alimony. I think that really makes sense and protects the person who is receiving alimony as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's better for everybody involved. I had a friend back in Boston who was a doctor who went through a divorce, and he had been paying alimony for, I think, like three decades. He's an older guy. And even though his ex-wife lived with her boyfriend, but she would never marry her boyfriend because that was when the alimony would stop. Your friend was paying for their life. Yeah, just paying for her life forever. <laughs> with no kid. <laughs> well, they had kids, but they were grown at that point. And so and he's still paying support. for her. Yeah. Yeah, so he was paying, like, the child support ended when the kids turned 18. Of course, he, like, still paid for their college and everything. But, yeah, the alimony kept going. That's so wild. It's crazy how every state is so different with all aspects of divorce. I also think that um, that's why it's important to have a prenup. Yes. Because they say, they say, like, oh, you'll be taken care of for X, Y, and Z. And a lot of women are like, yeah, that supports me as well. And it supports the money I'm bringing into it. And it also says that, if something goes wrong in our relationship, he has to support my children and me for X amount of years at X amount of percentage. Or even if it helps women who, you know, help their husbands build a business I know. and they devote everything to it. And then maybe the guy cheats on them and bounces. And now they're left with nothing, even though they gave all of themselves to raising their children and helping them grow their business. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So it's like, take a good look, hard, hard look at that prenup and make sure you're protected both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So she was going to stop getting this money. And I heard it estimated that he was giving her something like $4,500 in 2006 money a month. And that was over what she was getting for child support. That was just she was taking it for to pay the mortgage, to pay the bills, everything that was going on. Had he adopted the other two kids? Like, was he paying child support no. for that? Okay, so it's just for JJ. No, and there was also some speculation that her first husband didn't have a lot of means. And coincidentally, at the same time that he's trying to get JJ, her first husband was filing for custody of their children, or it seems like just one of their children for some reason, the daughter. And I don't know if there was some paternity question about the eldest son. But for whatever reason, he was going for custody of one of the children. And some people speculated that John had paid his legal bills. Oh, wow. That John was helping the first husband get his children as well. But that is speculation. We do not know that for sure. It came up in the book, so I thought it was worth mentioning, but we don't know if that's for sure. And in the end, she did get to keep custody of her daughter. So it was kind of a moot point. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But what's going on now is that they hate John and Kevin very viscerally hates 
John because we have to keep in mind his history, his trauma. The fact that this man might be getting away with molesting a child is extremely triggering for Kevin. Oh my God, yes, absolutely. Michelle is on him, telling him it's the truth, just talking about it nonstop about how he got away with it. I mean, that's also like so horrible to do to your partner if you know that they have childhood trauma. Like that's so horrible. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's a lot of people that think that Michelle knew exactly what she was doing. Okay. She was using that knowledge of Kevin's childhood trauma in order to weaponize him against John Yelenick. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. And Michelle's need for John's money and Kevin's absolute surety that John really was a child molesting monster would eventually become a lethal combination. Around this time, John began to complain that the state police were harassing him. Mm. So he told this to his cousin, Marianne. And at the time, Marianne thought he was overreacting. Marianne is kind of politically connected in this small town. She's a self-proclaimed law and order conservative who believes in law enforcement. So even though she loved her cousin who was like kind of like a brother to her because he didn't have any siblings. She was like, I think you're overreacting just because your ex is dating a state trooper. Okay. But other state troopers would later say that Kevin told several people in the barracks that he wanted to kill John. He told them that someone needed to take the pervert out. There was even another trooper that would later come forward and say that Kevin had even asked him if he would consider killing John Yelenick for him. Uh, not being careful. No. But I think he really thought that he had this brotherhood there with the state police and that this was a situation that warranted some sort of vigilante justice because it was a pedophile getting away with molesting a child. I know, but that's still kind of like delusional. It's delusional, but there's a lot of people, a lot of people that would tell you that if somebody got away with molesting their child, who he's now thinking of JJ as his child, yeah. they would kill him. I mean, I don't think it's a strange impulse to want to remove the person that injured your child like that. And like I said, he really does believe that this happened. Michelle has him completely convinced that this is actually something that's occurring and that JJ is in danger. Yeah. But being an investigator with the state troopers, you would think that he would hopefully look at the evidence, look at the case file, talk to his friend who was the investigator, talk to the judge, and look at the facts rather than being carried away by some sort of homicidal emotion. Yep. And someone who's instigating this entire situation with lies. 100%. And this is the poison. It's if Kevin kills John, there was one person that was just spewing the poison into his ear and filling his head with those thoughts. By early April of 2006, Michelle and John had finally reached a divorce agreement. And all that was left to do was sign the papers. 
So John was happy for what seemed like the first time in months. At least one part of this nightmare was going to be over. John had no idea that his nightmare had not even truly yet begun. John had made an appointment with his attorney and his aunt to officially sign his divorce papers on the afternoon of Thursday, April 13th. His aunt, who's Marianne's mother, was going with him to be the witness. But unfortunately, John never made that appointment because he was brutally attacked and murdered in his own home in the wee hours of the night. Andy, you know that I am a work hard, sleep hard kind of girl who takes my beauty rest extremely seriously. I do know this about you, Jesse. Well, then I have to tell you about Blissey. I had actually no idea that a pillowcase could make such a difference on my skin. I'm talking staying cool through the night and waking up with hydrated skin and hair and not the weird creasy face. Amazing. This is definitely the summer for sleeping better with Blissey's award-winning 100% Mulberry Silk Pillowcases. Blissey's Silk Pillowcases are temperature-regulating and have naturally insulating properties. So if you sweat and overheat while you sleep, Blissey is here for you. It stays cool throughout the night so that you're not constantly waking up sweating around your neck or flipping the pillow to find the cooler side. On top of that, it is so good for your hair because it reduces frizz, tangles, and prevents hair breakage. It keeps the moisture in your hair and keeps your skincare products and natural moisture on your skin because unlike cotton, silk does not absorb the moisture off of your face. So you can say goodbye to wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin in the morning and wake up with healthier hair. There are a lot of dupes out there that claim satin can be an alternative to silk, but that is not the case, my friends. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious all-natural fiber. Because it's synthetic, it also traps heat and moisture, so if you run warm, like me, it pulls the sweat and heat around your face while you sleep. Silk is more breathable, moisture-wicking, and gentle. It's also more durable and long-lasting. Think of it as an investment in getting better sleep and waking up feeling ready to take on the day. Blissey pillowcases are made of 100% mulberry silk, which is naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably without itching or rashes, which is so good for those allergies. And unlike other silk pillowcases, these are of the highest quality silk and are machine washable, durable, and even have a zipper to hold your pillow in case. It's also the perfect gift to give when you're looking for a gift for any occasion. Who doesn't love a gift that they didn't know they even needed? Plus, it comes in gift-ready packaging that they'll be sure to love. I can tell you one person who loves their brand new Blissey pillow, and that is my daughter who has crazy curls. For once, her curls aren't frizzed out in the morning because I cannot get that girl to wear a silk bonnet to save my life. <laughs> so if you have curly hair, this might be just the trick for you. Blissey silk pillows are the best silk pillows on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. They also have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissy.com slash lovemurder and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash lovemurder. And use code LOVEMURDER to get an additional 30% off. Sleep cooler this summer with Blissey. Around 3 p.m. on April 13th, 
nine-year-old Zachary Use went to return a video game that he had borrowed from John only to find that a window pane had been knocked out of the door. The front porch was littered with shards of glass and it looked like there was blood on the glass. When he looked through the broken window, he was able to see that John was lying on the floor in sweatpants and bare feet and not moving. So the nine-year-old tried to call out for him to see if he could rouse him to wake him up. He thought maybe there had been some sort of accident. When he could not wake John up just by shouting, he ended up putting his hand through the broken window pane to unlock the door that was still locked and let himself in. So he lets himself into the house and he sees that there's a lot of blood. There's blood everywhere. It is on the walls, on the ceiling. It is coating the floor and he runs over to John and he's still trying to wake him up. But it is very clear that John is dead. Okay. So at that point, he ran to his grandfather's house, which was a couple streets over, got his grandfather who came, saw the scene and called 911. So hard for a little kid to see. Oh, my God. Unbelievably traumatizing. We talk about this all the time when killers have no regard for the people whose lives are being touched, not just because of their connection to the victim, but also because they are going to be forever affected by finding a very, very viciously murdered person at the tender age of nine years old. Absolutely. It's horrible. I feel like there's a lot of times that we cover cases where it's like a neighbor kid or someone who was delivering something, or it's always just, there's so many times when it ends up being this like random third party that should not. It's an innocent bystander yes, who yes. gets caught up in a terrible murder. Well, detectives on the scene first noticed that the glass in the porch had come from inside. It was clear that whatever had happened, this struggle in the house had resulted in the window being broken and they could tell because of where the glass had fallen on the porch. Okay. So they noticed that right away. Upon entering the house, it was clear that there had been an intruder and a violent struggle. On the floor, they found John's divorce papers spread out everywhere. And also rather mysteriously, they found a check from Melissa Use, the next door neighbor, to John for $14,000. Okay. So they thought that was absolutely interesting. Blood, again, was everywhere. It had even dripped through the floorboards and was pooling in the basement. Oh That's gosh. how much blood was at this scene. The autopsy would later show, and this is kind of how the medical examiner determined what injury had happened first and created the scenario in which they could kind of tell how this brutal assault had gone down. Okay. He said that at first John had been punched in the face several times before it seemed like he was turning or he was putting his hands up to stop the blows. And his assailant had sliced his ear and face with a very sharp knife. So he had gone for, I'm guessing, his head or his face, and then John had turned. So he got his ear and almost removed the ear from his head and then sliced down his cheek. Oh. And then at that point, it looks like John was still holding his arms up, and then his assailant had slashed the inside of John's arm basically from the upper area down towards the elbow, which would have rendered the arm useless. 
And that put John in a situation where he could not defend himself. Neighbors reported that around one in the morning, they had heard screaming coming from the direction of John's house. Like it sounded like a pig squealing, somebody said. And that dogs had barked. But then afterwards, it was quiet. So no one had gone to investigate or call the police or anything. I just don't understand. The motive of this just has to be like pure rage because it logically doesn't make sense in regards to what Michelle was trying to get out of the divorce. Well, it does because if he had signed the papers the next day, she would only get a little bit of JJ's child support money. And if he died before he was divorced, then she would get his $1 million life insurance policy and she and JJ together would get his estate. And she's just planning on kicking Kevin to the curb. I don't know what she had planned with Kevin, but you'll find out what happens. Yeah, because he's going around asking people to kill this dude and then he ends up dead. Do you think he believed that this guy who was his close friend and his brother at the state police would turn him in? He didn't think so. It's just crazy if you believe in black and white things. I feel like that's a gray area. He believes this guy's a child molester and child molesters deserve to die. That's his black and white. Yeah. This is a case of obviously we're looking at it and you're saying like, well, it can't be black and white because if you looked at things about justice and doing the right thing, you wouldn't kill someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like trauma obviously supersedes that rationality. It does. And I think that I'm sure he probably would personally kill child molesters if he knew for sure they were a child molester because he thinks that's justice. That's his version. I mean, remember, he thinks he's a white knight. That's what he thought he was saving Michelle in this situation. And he's believing what she's telling him, despite all evidence to the contrary. All I know is that he seemed to really believe this. We do not have any evidence that shows that he knew that this was not true. Yeah. Because the neighbors had heard the screaming sometime between 1 and 1.30 in the morning, the medical examiner believed that after his arm and his ear had been sliced, that was when John started screaming and he tried to run to his front door, which was bolted. So it was still bolted close. The person that attacked him had come in from the back door and they had also left through the back door. And we know that because there was blood smeared on the door handle. And this is, goes to show if it's Kevin who did this, he wasn't thinking very clearly because there was also a footprint in blood. So they got a shoe print. And they know that that had to belong to the intruder because John was barefoot. Yeah. And he's a state trooper. So they know about this stuff. Yes. He absolutely should have known better. I don't know if murder was always the plan here, but it definitely escalated to that level. So when, and I'm not saying Kevin's the killer right now, so I'm just going to say the killer. So when John ran to the door, and of course he is very badly injured on his right hand, so he's probably having great difficulty trying to unlock this door so he can get out, that is when the killer caught up with him and then pushed his head through the window. Wow, that is so crazy. Well, this is why there's some speculation that if it was Kevin, not saying if it was, that 
he might be on steroids because the level of force and strength behind this attack was extraordinary. Yeah. So at that point, the killer pulled John back in to the house. So he, he's his head goes through the window. Mm. Then he pulls him back in. And at that point, the shards of glass cut John's throat. He's not passed away at this point already? They do not believe he was. So it is likely that if he had not been able to seek medical attention, he very potentially could have died just from the injuries he's already suffered from. But then the killer dragged him back into the living room and delivered what was most certainly the killing blow. They slashed John's neck deeply, cutting the carotid artery and severing his trachea and Adam's apple. The medical examiner said that John likely bled out in mere minutes. Ugh. So then obviously the killer left through the back door because they found the shoe footprints and blood smeared on the back of the door. And they believe that's obviously how he got in because the front door was still locked when the nine-year-old came. And that's obviously where they can draw fingerprints from, right? They were not able to pick up any fingerprints from that smear. So his assailant could be wearing gloves. And it was just the shoe print that they're going off of now. Now they have a shoe print. But they also did find some blood underneath John's nails. They don't know, I mean, whose it is. They think it's very likely just John's because there was just so much blood around. And if he was grasping at his throat, obviously he's going to get his blood underneath his fingernails then. But there was some hope that maybe a little bit of some of the killer's DNA was somehow underneath his fingernails. So they did bag his hands and eventually did take scrapings of what was under his nails for DNA testing. Okay. So they've got that and they've got the footprint. So this was good. I mean, that's some promising early evidence. Like, let's talk about last week. And if you guys are listening in reverse order, I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to you know, spoil it for you. But let's just say in that case, there was very little evidence. There was nada. Yeah, exactly. And so this is a great starting point for an investigator. But it's obviously a crime of rage and passion. And like we've said before so many times, a lot of the times they're not thinking when that happens. Or like you said, it escalates quickly and then it's not planned. It seems like if this was indeed Kevin, let's say, he obviously lost himself in killing John because he must have been wearing gloves if there's no fingerprints. But at some point, the rage, the triggered trauma and emotional state and the anger, potentially the steroid rage if he was on them, obviously took over because this is not a very well thought out crime scene. So... Now on to the suspects. Well, Cousin Marianne said that there was not a person alive who wanted good-natured John dead, especially in a horrible assault like this that clearly showed deep hatred, with the exception of Michelle and her new love, State Trooper Kevin Foley. Now, this was a very thorny subject because the small Blairsville Police Department had never handled a homicide, ever because these things just didn't happen in this tiny town. And so they didn't have the resources or the expertise to investigate the murder. So normally they would give it to the state police. Oh, my God. So in this situation, Marianne 
was like, absolutely not. No way you're handing this over to the state police. Both her and Melissa Use were like, because Melissa Use called her. She's like, they're going to send the state police over here. You got to make it stop because Marianne was more politically connected. She's like, you got to talk to the police chief, make sure that they're not allowed on the scene because they'll start fucking shit up right away. That was how strong the suspicion of state police corruption was right from the beginning. Yep. So at that point, Marianne, who had been defending the state police, now realized that John had been telling the truth, that he had been getting harassed by Kevin Foley and his cronies at the state police. And now she really did fear the worst. She really feared that he was going to get away with it. He was going to get away with the murder. She said to author Carlton Smith that if a state trooper had committed the murder of her cousin, she was worried that the case would never be solved. The state troopers would certainly cover it up. Because they're a big brotherhood, they cover for each other, Marianne said later. But Marianne wasn't going to let the brotherhood get away with that. I was like, I'll be damned. This is not going away. I knew what they did to John in life. And I was the person who should have done something in life when he was here. I should have done something and I didn't because I defended the state police. When John would say things that were happening to him, how they treated him in court, how he'd go to pick up Jamie and they were pushing him around, or they'd be waiting for him at his house to intimidate him. <sighs> but she kept her suspicions mostly to herself right at the beginning, other than trying to make sure they weren't allowed on the scene, because she said that she didn't want people thinking that she was hysterically rushing to judgment. She said, I was afraid someone might think I probably watched too much TV. But deep down, I knew because John didn't have any enemies. Nobody hated John. So I wouldn't say who I thought did it. But then people would say to me, well, if it's a state trooper, nothing will happen. <sighs> Maybe he counted on his brotherhood cleaning up after him. That's wild, though. But Marianne was able to convince the local police to keep the state police out of it, at least for a little while, because they, they did end up immediately putting Kevin on leave. So at least he was out of the situation. But it, it kind of did seem like law enforcement in general was bending over backwards to find any suspect other than Kevin Foley. It did not seem like even the local police really wanted it to be Kevin. As a result, the Use family was put through the ringer. There was the matter of the $14,000 check and the fact that while most of the neighbors heard the screams between 1 and 2 in the morning, another neighbor reported hearing screaming between two men around 3.30 in the morning. And he said that he very specifically heard one man yell at the other man, I'll never loan you money again. What? Yeah. So because John had been accused of molesting J.J., the initial theory about the uses and their involvement in this murder was that maybe the uses had discovered that John had molested their sons and there was some sort of blackmail situation going on here. But that didn't make sense because why would Melissa be paying John then? Yeah, no. They're like, okay, so that toss that one out. That doesn't make any sense. And then the next theory was that John had been having an affair with Melissa because Again, small town, tongues had been wagging that when her husband was away and she was just overly friendly with John, and now no one ever saw them kissing or touching. It was just that they seemed friendly with one another. 
Which, again, Melissa went to high school with John. They've been friends for years at this point. He's 39 years old. So they've been friends for over two decades. Yeah. You're going to be chummy. Yeah. And it's your next door neighbor. So you're going to hang out on a porch together every once in a while after the kid's in bed or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) So a lot of people were saying, well, maybe there was something going on with them. And maybe Tom, who is a military man, found out about it and he killed John. And then that would fit in with the money borrowing. Maybe he said, I'll never lend you money again because Tom came over to give him the check and one thing led to another and Tom killed him. People are grasping. They are. And also there was this thing that like Tom had uh, mowed his lawn close to the back door or something like over the property line when the police were still gathering evidence. And so one of the neighbors was like, he was trying to destroy evidence maybe. Oh my God. It's like he's mowing his lawn. Everybody chill. (laughs) We're going full Fargo over here. He's mowing (laughs) over the body. Yeah. Well, neither of these situations were true, of course. John had lended Melissa $15,000 so she could open up her bakery, which she had. The bakery was now making money, and she was able to pay him back the $14,000 right then because I believe he might have needed it for something involved in the divorce. Like he had, he had needed the money back at that point. And then she said that the last 1000 was going to be coming at a later date. And why they looked at them suspiciously is because after Melissa found out that John was dead, she canceled the check. Okay. At the time, she said that she didn't know where the money would be going. Like, is it going to go to Michelle? So she's like, fuck that. I'm not going to, like, pay that bitch $14,000. If it's going to JJ in a trust, of course, I'll make sure that he gets that money. But for now, I'm canceling the check. I would totally do that, too. Yeah. And of course, the police looked at that as suspicious. Like, did she owe him money? And then somebody in the family killed him and then they canceled the checks. They never had to pay it back. Guys. (laughs) I mean, it's reaching. It's really reaching right now. But yeah, they said that they tried, but the puzzle pieces were not coming together for somebody in the use family to have been the murderer of John, especially given that they all had such great relationships with each other and no one, in fact, the only suspicion was that they were too friendly. There's no, nobody ever saw Tom and John being upset with each other. In fact, Tom member had stood up for him at the hearing. Yes, that's what I was just going to say. This is not really coming together for that scenario, let's say. So of course, they have to look at Trooper Foley and there was one person looking at him already. So basically, Trooper Foley had a guy who was kind of like his boss, but he was in the middle. Okay. Like he had a boss. Let's, for the scenario, put Trooper Foley at the bottom, and then he has like this mid-level boss, and there's a top boss. And the mid-level boss hated him, had always hated him, always thought that he was going to be a problem, thought he played too loose too fast, thought he was a dick, and... When this happened, that boss was like, oh, this motherfucker did it. And so he was kind of holding his own covert investigation into him. Okay. But because of politics and what was going on, one of Kevin Foley's bosom buddies, I guess I really said bosom buddies because of where I'm going with this sentence was a female trooper, and she accused the middle-level boss of sexual harassment. No. Which seems convenient, given that he's looking into Kevin for murder, and now all of a sudden he has to be sidelined because of the sexual harassment complaint. Yep. So there was fuckery happening. 
but it didn't win out because it was just too obviously Kevin, which we're going to start talking about now. Good, good. That's what I'm here for. That is yeah. what I'm here for. <laughs> like, come on. It's like so crazy that there were so many other theories, but like. There was also a guy in prison who came forward and said that he had a buddy who told him that he had done it to the doc, like that he was one of the dentist patients and he knew the guy had some money. And so it was a robbery gone wrong because John went to leave and the guy who was robbing the house went to stop him and he accidentally put his head through the window and then that killed him. But that's not what the medical examiner found. And it just didn't make any sense. So there was also that. So that that was another theory that they were working with based on this prison snitch, who, by the way, had already tried to sell a similar story to get some time off in a different case completely. So it's clear that he was just reading the newspaper and doing whatever he could, which honestly wasn't a bad bet in this case, because I think that at this point they were looking at Kevin. And so he's probably thinking, well, they're not going to want to prosecute a state trooper when they could prosecute some dirtbag that's already been in jail. So maybe I'll get some points on this one. Oh, my God. That was another theory that was happening. But let's, yes, let's move on to Kevin. So Kevin did have an alibi. He had been a couple towns over playing an intramural hockey game. And then he had gone home to Michelle and their now four children as they had recently adopted a child from Guatemala. So they have a baby at home. At face value, sure, seems like a good alibi. But if you look at it closely, not really. Because the hockey game was done hours before 1 to 2 in the morning. And who is going to really trust Michelle's word that he was home with her when she has a lot to gain from John being dead and not divorced from her? Yeah. She was going to get that $1 million insurance policy. And JJ was inheriting his father's entire estate and she would get to control it. Wow. She'd have controlling rights? Yes. Wow. Okay. So yeah. So there's a lot of motivation for her to do this. It was a $2 million estate altogether, I believe. So she has got 2 million reasons for wanting this murder to happen when it did. So who knows? Maybe Kevin was also doing it for the timing. Or do you think she was just like, well, you're going to kill the child molester anyway. Do it at a time that it benefits us the most. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it depends on how manipulative and in his ear she actually was. Yes. Had John been murdered the next night after signing those papers with his divorce attorney and his aunt, she would have just gotten her allotment of child support. And J.J., would eventually have inherited his father's estate, but in a trust when he was 18. Yeah, so there's definitely something with the timing, I would say. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Furthermore, the day after the murder, Kevin was spotted by several people who noticed he had a mark on his right eye that appeared to be a fingernail scratch from his eyebrow down towards his nose. Oh, so big. Yes, big scratch. One of the troopers said that he even joked with him, like, oh, you didn't take no for an answer, like, which is a rape joke, so really gross, but whatever. I guess. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Kevin said, no, he had bounced his hockey stick in a way that it rebounded and hit him in the face. Oh, that's new. I thought he was going to go with I have a cat or something. 
Well, they didn't have a cat. He like also on the way home from murdering goes to the animal shelter, picks up a cat just for that reason. How dare he bring cats into this? <laughs> you brought cats into this. Nobody brought cats into this. <laughs> no, he went with the old, I bounced a hockey stick somehow in a weird way that it rebounded and hit me in the face. That's it's... what he was going with. Wow. Okay. Which is a stretch. Later, his defense attorney, though, doesn't even try to say that he wasn't scratched. Even though by the time they actually did take photos of Kevin, he had healed because it took them months to actually investigate him. So his house wasn't even searched, I think, for like six weeks. Oh, my God. Yeah. Though the murder weapon was never found because he had ample time to get rid of it, obviously, Witnesses said that Kevin was considered a knife man. I guess in the force, some guys are knife men and some guys are gunmen. And Kevin was a knife guy. And he had been seen when they were in meetings or whatever, like just around the barracks. He had this like double-ended, yeah. Do you see what I'm doing with my hands? Yeah, like playing with the knife. Playing with the knife, like flicking it open and flicking it shut. It's like one of those like double-sided knife situations. And so he had been seen around all the time, angrily flicking this knife that all of a sudden after the murder, he's not doing that anymore. Oh, where'd his knife go? Where'd his knife go? We don't know. And then his coworkers also said that he was known for his loyalty to ASICS running shoes. He was brand loyal, but that after the murder, Kevin abruptly switched to Nikes. Oh, when forensic techs studied the bloody shoe print, they determined that it was caused by an Asics Gel Creed running shoe. Oh, bad marketing for Asics. <laughs> it is. The detectives were able to determine that not only had many witnesses known Kevin to wear these exact shoes, in fact, he had bought these exact shoes for another runner friend, that they also had proof based on him ordering the shoes that he had bought these exact shoes in 2003. So they got receipts, literally. It's not looking good for you. No, it is not looking good. And like I said, this all came out months after John's death because there was some reason to believe that at least some members of the state troopers were attempting to sidetrack the investigation and throw suspicion off Kevin. And like I said, there was that one middle middle level boss that was a whistleblower and was investigating Kevin when he was sidelined for what I believe ended up being false, but I don't really know how that really shook out that whole scenario. Sounds right. And so, yeah, I think he ended up suing because he got either suspended or straight up fired. And then I think he sued the state police for unlawful termination. And I think, I think that's what, how it went down. And then he was justified in the end. But yeah, so there was some fuckery that was going on. But at the end of the day, the state police did the right thing. And all of the evidence was preserved. No state police had touched any of the evidence on the scene so that they could not say there wasn't a footprint there. I don't know what you're talking about. Or, oops, the fingernail scrapings disappeared. Or, oops, that's not ASICs. We said Adidas. Yes, exactly. So thankfully, there were enough good people working in this department to make sure that the bad apples were stomped out. And I believe that some people did get fired or suspended for any perceived... Malpractice? Malpractice. Fuckery. I was gonna, I'm going to go with a, a very technical procedural term of any fuckery. Yep. Oh, also, 
there's so much evidence against Kevin. It's like insane. They also took security footage from a gas station where I guess Kevin would have had to like turn to get from where he lived to where John lived because he's still living in Indiana with Michelle and their children at this point. So they showed it on the TV show. I I didn't get to look up this one. I'm sure there's got to be a forensic files on this episode because (laughs) there's just so much forensic evidence. But they see his car, literally his vehicle is like an SUV, like going to making the turn towards John's house. And then obviously around like two in the morning later, going back the other way towards his own house. So it was just like caught on tape too. So they've got that. They've got so much. Oh my goodness. Kevin was facing obviously a much stronger penalty than just losing his job especially when his DNA was found in the sample that had been scraped from under John's fingernails. Yikes. That's pretty open and shut. It's pretty open and shut at this point. I mean, they already had a ton, but now it's like DNA. It's the nail in the coffin. The only thing that was a problem in this case, which is, of course, what his defense attorneys will bring up, is that they had to do a very complicated process to eliminate John's blood because... It was something like 80% or more of the sample was John's blood. It was just a little bit of Kevin's DNA, that skin probably from the fingernail scratch. And so they had to do a complicated process to take out essentially a large portion of it and try to focus only on the non-John DNA. And because it was a new process later, his defense attorneys are going to say that it's junk science and it's not proven. Okay. But since then, this has been a tried and true practice and it has won out over the course of time. So this was the only thing that kind of held them up on the DNA for a little while. But now they've got that too. Just added on the pile. Yeah. Author Carlton Smith pointed out how often John had given in to Michelle's demands how he had barely fought back against her heinous allegations, something his own divorce attorney had also noticed, that he just didn't have much of a backbone. He didn't want to fight. He's not a fighter. And he wrote that John hadn't survived Kevin Foley's attack for a couple reasons. Number one, like we've been talking about ad nauseum, Michelle had totally convinced Kevin that John was a child abuser, which triggered a passionate rage due to his own trauma. Also, potentially, he was on steroids, which Carlton Smith also speculated that if there had been a cover-up, it wasn't because they didn't want a state trooper to go down for this, that maybe there was some sort of illegal steroid use happening within the ranks of the state troopers, and they thought if he was caught on one thing that they might discover that there was other troopers using. So that was his speculation because he didn't see a reason why anyone would put their job on the line for this. And then secondarily, John Yelenek just was not a fighter. Carlton Smith said that his mother had raised John in a bubble, and as a result, he had remained a child at heart. She had protected him so much that he had remained innocent till the very end. So he was completely defenseless when Kevin attacked him. While gathering evidence against Kevin, investigators also found out that John had put aside $10,000, which he left with his divorce attorney. That money was earmarked for a private investigation in the event that Kevin killed him and the state police covered it up. Wow. John had predicted his own murder and the potential fallout of his murderer being so well-connected. Yep. 
Kevin Foley was arrested in September of 2006, some five months after John's murder. The Pennsylvania Attorney General said, it is a sad day for the Pennsylvania State Police when one of our members is arrested, but everyone, no matter what his or her position in society, must be held accountable for their actions. Okay, good. Amen. Kevin's trial finally kicked off in March of 2009, and the reason it took so long was because there was a lot of fighting about the DNA evidence. A lot of fighting about it. Yeah, what was going to be let in, how it was going to be let in, what experts could testify, what they could say. Crazy. And the state argued that Kevin had been led to believe that John was a child molester by his girlfriend, Michelle Yelenek, and the couple stood to benefit greatly from John's death if he was killed before he could sign those divorce papers. Which, of course, he was. Kevin maintained his innocence, and the defense smeared John Yelenek by depicting him both as a child molester, but also somehow an adulterous snake who was having an affair with Melissa Use. Carlton Smith was kind of like, hey, pick a side. Is he a pedophile or is he a ladies' man, Don Juan, who's romancing the neighbor's wife? Yeah, where are we at with this? Yes. They brought up the witness that heard two men arguing at 3.30 in the morning and saying very specifically something about I'll never like loan you money again. And they were trying to still place the blame on Tom Yu, saying that obviously this neighbor had overheard the two of them fighting because, and the defense attorney said this in his opening and closing statements, obviously John had never lent Kevin any money. So- How could this witness have heard that when it obviously... One random person in the middle of the night while they're probably sleeping, maybe thinking that they heard something after yelling. Like, I can't believe that that's their defense. Well, also the craziest thing about this is that Carlton Smith wrote that later on, and I don't know how they didn't know this when this was happening, but later on, they found out that it was garbage night. It was garbage night, and they later would interview the garbage men who are working, and the garbage men had gotten to a fight. That's why it was so much later than everyone else heard. Yeah, Everyone else heard the actual attack at like one. This guy missed the attack somehow, but heard the garbage men arguing because one had loaned the other one money and wasn't paying it back. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So of course, the, the, the witness is telling the truth. He's just... We as humans put together context based on what we know around what we heard. Our brains desperately try to make sense of things. So he's going, well, it must have been that. And he tells the police that. But really, it was was something completely innocent. Yeah. At this point, no one knew that. So the defense is still arguing that, even though the prosecution is arguing that everybody else and the medical examiner said that he died between 1 and 2 a.m. So it would not stand to reason that the fight could have actually taken place at 3.30. So that's basically what they're going with. They're going with the fact that somebody else did it. Carlton Smith called this the Saudi defense, which is like right up there now with LWAP for me. S-O-D-D-I. Some other dude did it. Oh, God. The Saudi defense. And they also did try to, when they could not get the DNA thrown out completely, they just tried to get a their own witness that said that It was not in the millions and billions that we always hear about with DNA because of the process that they had to use to get it and that it was actually just one in 13,000 and it could have been like any number of white men in the Blairsville area. And so they were trying to disprove the DNA evidence because obviously that is a bullet that is very difficult for defense attorneys to get around a positive DNA test. 
Well, in the end, after a day of deliberation, the jury found former state trooper Kevin Foley... Big old G. Yes, very guilty. Kevin was sentenced to life in prison. And that's, I think Pennsylvania is the state we've talked about that does the real life in prison. Yeah. Not like life, but you can get parole in 20 years. So he's going to be in there for a while. He has maintained his innocence and he has never thrown Michelle under the bus. Ever. So she got off scot-free. She was not charged with one single crime connected to the murder of her estranged husband. But she didn't get the money. So what happened with the money was that I do believe she ended up getting, I think she might have gotten the insurance money. Wow. Or, because Marianne started suing. Marianne's like the cousin. She's a spitfire. She's on the, the TV show too. And she was the one that really pushed this forward. And she started like suing Michelle. She was suing the state police. I mean, she got in it. So I think what happened was that there was some portion of the money that she gets from John's estate every month to take care of JJ, like it would have happened if they had gotten divorced. But I think that the bulk of John's estate is now in a trust, as was described for JJ, that he will have access to when he is something like 18 or 21. Good. Okay. So that is is where it landed with that. So I don't think it was like she got the millions of dollars. I mean, it depends how controlling she might be. She might still have access to that money somehow. Yeah. 18, you're still a kid. So I don't know. He's an adult now. I did do some Googling and JJ looks like he's doing well. So I don't really know what his life has been like. I really can't imagine it. On the day that Kevin was convicted, Michelle actually packed up all her kids and moved to Savannah, Georgia on the very day. And she did not come to support Kevin at the trial at all. Probably a good move. Yeah. Well, they said that there was a possibility that she was going to be called as a witness because she was Kevin's alibi. So therefore, she wouldn't have been able to be present in the courtroom. So maybe that's why she wasn't there. But she did not stick around to visit him in prison. Off she went to Savannah, Georgia. And uh, I did look up this book, the book I used, Dying for Love by Carlton Smith on Amazon. And there was one reviewer named Venice Sharon who wrote... I know, Michelle Yelenick. this book explained so much. Quote, the book gave a very clear picture of the terrible crime. Dr. John Yelenick's wife lives in our community and is just as the book describes her. You need to read this if you live in Savannah. Whoa. <laughs> Wowza. Whoa. So Michelle is not guilty of any crime that she has ever been charged with. So no jury has ever been able to decide her fate. But it sounds like one Amazon reviewer has passed a judgment. (laughs) (laughs) I do not know if Michelle is still in touch with Kevin Foley or why he truly has never ratted her out. But maybe he will when his appeals run out. So far, he's appealed a bunch and none have been successful. So it is looking very likely that he is staring down the barrel of a long, long life behind bars, which can't be the best place for a former state trooper. No. No. Isn't that crazy? Why do you think he hasn't turned on her? Everything's so black and white. I guess it's going back to his black and white. I mean, I was also thinking that 
I can see him being the type of guy that would say, if this all goes sideways and nobody covers up shit for me and I go down for it, I'm going to keep you out of it so you can raise our kid. Yeah. Because he had such a hard childhood too. So it's like that is what's probably more important to him than they had a baby at that time. So he's saying the kids will be safe and provided for with you at least. And if we both go to jail, then where are the kids going to go? I know. It's sad. So maybe it was black and white for him that it's better that she get away with murder and be the mother to their children. Crazy. Crazy. In conclusion, I think we've learned, Andy, that sometimes living in the gray and being able to see all of the complexities of life and understanding that people aren't truly good or truly evil ever is a good place to be. It is. And everyone should also practice a little bit less lying. Lying is not so good. Yeah, I mean, we have to tell this to our kids now because they're yes. starting to talk and, and now they're starting to explore what lying is. Uh, Did you go poo-poo? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that's about where we're at with that. But lying is bad because your words mean something. Yes. And they might mean a whole lot of something to the wrong person. Yes. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets murdered. Bye-bye. Bye.